Okay, folks. Welcome back. I've got a confession to make. Do we still have tables to introduce themselves? No. No, I think we do. You all did. Have you all introduced yourselves this year? They're the last ones, and you all have, correct? Have you all? Joanne, you look like you're not telling me the truth. You, you all haven't, correct? And you all have. Oh, you haven't. Okay. Have you all introduced yourselves this year? Have you all? They did last week. Okay. I think I skipped. Okay. Yeah, I thought we still had three. Okay. Well, we'll, who's prepared to go tonight? All right. I'm, I'll have you all go tonight, and then that way I can remember it's the two end ones next time or the next two times. Okay. But first, but first we're going to have Christine do the devotional. So I'm sorry to be confused about these introductions, but I'm getting the Wednesday in this class confused. I just can't remember who's done what, you know. So. Thank you. So it's the age thing. I know. Thank you, Joanne. You've made my day. So. Okay. Um, So yeah, as we've been studying the Gospels, I've just been convicted of the blessing and honestly, sometimes the luck to be in the right place at the right time and also actually have the clarity of mind and the open heart to listen to what is being said. So yeah, to actually hear and be moldable and amenable to what God is placing before us, within us, around us. How many messages or opportunities do I miss on a daily basis as I am trapped inside the kingdom of Christine? And as we enter into this wonderful season of blessing and gratitude and fall leaves and slowing down and trying to keep up with the shopping and the planning and the intentionality of having the perfect holidays, um, I'm just asking you to fight with me to channel the power with, within us and around us to become more deeply aware of the power of the Holy Spirit, God's presence in our day today, and our, a genuine connection with the people around us that we are called to love and lift up that's often deeper and less divisive than we realize. So this is a two-pronged opening to truly slow down and find I am what it means to rest in the Holy Spirit and be still and to let go of me enough to really be open to we. So I am going to go to each table and I want you to just count off um, by numbers. So each one go around and start with one and go around the table. We don't have to just do it at the same time. Just someone take on one and go around. Okay. Is everyone done? Okay. So all the odd numbers, I want you to stay at the tables. All the even numbers, I want you to stand up, please. I want you to go to another table and find someone that you have never spoken to before or very little and go sit down and uh, find a partner. No, just for right, just for like five minutes. Okay. I know. I know you're so nervous. Well, if, if there's an odd number, yeah. Okay. Does everyone have a partner? 
Sorry to make it awkward, okay? It's going to get a little bit more awkward. Don't kill me, but it's just, this is fun. It's fun. Okay. So, um, all right, ready? Time. I need to So, without speaking for five seconds. Okay? Ready, set, go. Okay, now close your eyes. Oops, sorry, that's my... Now close your eyes. So, what was your partner... What color are your partner's eyes? What color was the top that your partner is wearing? What is their name on their name tag? How much did you notice about your partner compared to what you noticed about yourself within that five seconds? <laughs> because I know once I did this for 30 seconds, and most of the time I just thought about me. So that's just a little. So now, now open your eyes, and in front of you, um, I'm going to set the timer again. This time it's for four minutes. Everyone has a sheet, so each partnership can take a sheet to share. Okay? And there's a, a bunch of random questions. Okay, so your job is to go and ask any random question. You can sit there and talk about one question the whole time. You can ask each other the same question and take turns. You can ask each other a completely different question. Basically, it's just supposed to unfold organically as it does. You might find you have something that you can talk about for four minutes that's just one question. Go ahead. So we pick questions you ask them? Yes. Yes, and you can pass. Anyone can pass. That's that's game two. You can pass and ask a different question. But there's 30 questions. You can ask all 30 questions, or you can just ask one question. Okay, so four minutes. Go. Time. Again. Whistle. Hello. Time is up. So, um, thank you guys for indulging me tonight. Um, I hope you enjoyed making a connection with someone new and realizing just how easy and quickly it can be done when we're willing to kind of step out of what we're supposed to be doing and our own heads and hang-ups about what we want to be doing. Um, I'm not asking for anyone to get sued staring awkwardly at someone else at the checkout line or, you know, I am asking, though, to take with you this idea that maybe we need to act on that nudge sometimes to make the statement, ask the question, or help someone reach for the peanut butter in the grocery store. And you just never know what you actually have in common with someone that you didn't know before. So hopefully that was fun. So um, there's one more there's one more part to this. Um, sorry. I know. Watch out. Um, so as... Now it's time to just kind of clear our heads a little bit with me and slow down before we enter into our study today. As a kid, I had to do biofeedback to help resolve migraine headaches that I had. So I'm here to share some of those skills that have helped me to find stillness and active rest and helps in hopes it will help um, make all of us more aware of the Holy Spirit within and our ability to put the kingdom of self and our idols and worries and to-do lists at bay and be open to listening to God. So I ask you to first get comfortable in your seats. Shift your position to get comfortable with your feet firmly on the ground. Try not to slouch your shoulders. Roll them back. Okay? And open your fingers and place your palms on your lap with your palms up. So bend your arms, put your palms up, and have some space between your fingers as they are on your laps. Okay. 
So, now close your eyes and I ask you to breathe with me for a moment. First, we're going to breathe in and out together. And the first few times, I want you to breathe in your nose and out your mouth, but I want you to breathe out to be audible like this. <sighs> and it's really weird. Again, don't kill me, but just try it because it actively physically helps you to relax. So it's your turn to join me. Breathe in. One, two, three, four. Breathe out. <sighs> breathe in. One, two, three, four. Breathe out. <sighs> So I'm going to keep counting to four, and I want you to breathe in and out as comfortably as you can as I count. So it can be in or out for two, in and out for all four. It's up to you. But just try to think about your chest and your belly expanding and contracting and fully releasing the breath and just trying to find stillness. And as you breathe, I want you to imagine the space that you feel between your fingers. What does that open sensation, that feeling of nothing, feel like? I challenge you to bring in that breathe in that space into your nose and into your face, to your head, to your neck, to your shoulders, to your chest, to your arms, to your hands, through your torso, to your legs, down to your feet. What do you feel? Is it something more open is is something more open or are you stuck on something that isn't? Continue to breathe in and out and find space. Allow light to enter. Allow gratitude to enter. Imagine the Holy Spirit around and within you. What thoughts keep entering into your head that impede active rest and letting go and emptying yourself? I ask you to breathe together with me two more times. Again, with an audible exhale. Breathe in. One, two, three, four. Breathe out. <sighs> breathe in. One, two, three, four. Breathe out. So you can open your eyes right now. And um, I hope, I know that that was a little bit different. Um, some of it I had done at like an art show, and I just thought it was fun. Um, it was a good sort of challenge to me. And some of this I have to like fight to do to just kind of remind myself what it means to actively rest and actively make space to get out of my head so that I can immerse myself in my Bible study or what I need to listen and do um, and kind of let that thing go. I know when I do this, I get stuck on my to-do list or, you know, whatever this feeling might be and um, just kind of being open to letting those things going and, um, yeah, realizing that the Holy Spirit is around us and there's so much that we can pay attention to that we often don't. So, sorry about that. That was supposed to come on a lot sooner, but, yeah, anyway. So that was great and interactive, and because of that, we won't do the introductions tonight. We'll, you'll get a reprieve. But that was really good, Christine. Because so, that's the purpose, is to get a little bit of cross-ventilation and pollination in the room, which is hard to do. So, Christine, I love the kingdom of Christine. I will... We all have the kingdom of, you know, Larry and Gail, etc. But yours has alliteration, so it's really good to, <laughs> to go. So thank you for that. Uh, and thank you all again for coming. Um, we are 
This is the one you didn't have homework for, so I think the attendance is really good tonight since you, <laughs> you had a week to catch up. And, uh, and a couple of, just a couple of things where we are in, in the class is we will meet the next two Sunday nights, uh, which includes the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And then, which is, so that's the 17th and the 24th. And then, yeah, and then you all are done until the middle of January. Uh, your break starts, correct? Yeah, yeah. It's the Old Testament class. They have longer lessons, so they've got to go into December. So, and I think it's January the 12th when we come back for two weeks, yes. So, Marilyn has another good human relation thing. Yeah, Marianne, so come on up. Okay. Just. Uh, I was just thinking in, in thankfulness to our cookie bakers who are not here tonight because they're in England. Maybe on the meeting before, at the meeting before Thanksgiving, uh, we would present them with a bouquet of flowers and a card or something. And I'd be happy to go out and find something. If you want to contribute to that, a, a dollar would be great from everybody. We can show something really nice. And, and then if that. Right. <laughs> right. So, so anybody can give you a dollar or two tonight, or, or in the next two weeks. Great. That's that's great. So, yeah, and they even arranged for Judy to do a sub tonight, and Judy had to go to New Jersey, so she came up this morning, I think, or yesterday, or sent them by somebody. She did the baking tonight, so. All right, um, so let's, this, I always like, like doing this, and I hope this is helpful, and I, and I want you all to, to certainly, I always want you to feel free to ask questions, but especially as we go tonight, because the purpose of this tonight is to just draw together, uh, not even necessarily what we've been studying about Jesus, although somewhat, but just to say, uh, just to say, what do we mean when we say Jesus Christ? So that uh, Richard, Richard, keep it down, keep it down, keep it down. <laughs> it's the collection table over there. All right, thanks. I know, I know it is, I know. But even stewardship, you got to listen to Christine's message. It has to be done in quiet, okay? So, um, so anyway. The, the purpose of this is just to, to have, you know, a good hour and a half in here. <laughs> I know, it's just we can hear you. So. I don't think, I don't think Judas was this loud, isn't it? You know? <laughs> All right, thank you, thank you. Thank you. It's fine to misbehave. Just don't get caught doing it, you know. So, all right. So so what we're going to do is just try to, you know, really try to gather what is it, you know, what, is, what do we know about Jesus Christ and what, what is the New Testament claim about him and ultimately what, what do we believe, uh, believe about him. That's kind of the purpose of this with the background of everything you've been reading and, and discussing here. Uh, the last nine weeks or nine lessons. So, um, 
So I want to just start. I'm going to walk you through this, but but kind of expand it as we go along. Um, one of the one of the simplest way to start is what is you know what's the origin of the name Jesus? What does the name Jesus mean? And I remember hearing this probably in seminary. I, I don't think I heard it before this, but literally the the origins of the word Jesus is with Joshua, which means in some form God saves. I mean that that's the that's the meaning of the name Jesus, the etymology of the name Jesus, and it, it does come through the Old Testament name of of Joshua, and Jesus or Joshua itself was a very common name in the Old Testament, kind of like John or Mark or Mary or you know it was just a common name, but it but it does mean God saves, and I and I. Uh, I gave three verses here where there are three Jesuses listed or two Jesuses listed in the New Testament, one in Luke 3.29 and one in Colossians, where someone is named Jesus but who's not Jesus Christ. So there's some evidence that it was it was a somewhat common name in the New Testament times too. And then Josephus, who is the uh, Jewish historian who lived who was born right at the time Jesus died, uh, mentions four or five high priests during the Roman period that were named Jesus. I think I think Josephus is Jewish. Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, Josephus is the only non-biblical historian or writer that has any reference to Jesus Christ. And, and his is a very short reference of, of a Jesus that was put to death by the Roman authorities. So when we talk about you know, a source outside the Bible that provides information of Jesus, Josephus is the only one, and he was a, a very thorough historian. But, but he does mention four or five high priests. So, so the name Jesus was not uncommon in the New Testament times. Um, as, I, as I said, the, the etymology of it is from Yah Jehovah will save, um, or the salvation of the Lord. So it's so his name is tied up with salvation, and that matches um, a couple of things. One is if you'll remember in Matthew's genealogy, um, his name is explained. Joseph is told to name him Jesus. You shall call him Jesus. Quote: For he shall save the people from their sins. So that that is explained in Matthew's genealogy. And then it actually fits uh, a parallelism, one of the biggest parallels from the Old Testament to New Testament, and that is just um, the equation of deliverance from slavery um, in Egypt into the Promised Land. Moses leading them out of slavery and, and Joshua actually leading the people into the promised land. That is the formative event in Israel's history. And that is parallel in the New Testament uh, with Jesus saving us from our sins. I mean, that's that's the language that the church has inherited. So there's um, the salvation from the power of sin is equated from in the New Testament with the salvation from the power of slavery. And Paul makes that that analogy himself. Um, so all that is, is tied up to the meaning of the name Jesus. Then we get to the second name, Christ. So what does Christ mean? 
Um, I, the last point I make uh, making here, one of the last points, is that is that because we have lost the me, the meaning of the word Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ is almost just like a last name for Jesus. I mean, that's sort of the way we learn it as kids. But it literally means that the word Christ. Uh, if, if you follow this, it's the English form of the Greek adjective Christos, which means anointed. And it's used about 40 times in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. The, as Christianity developed, the, I mean, obviously the Old Testament was originally in Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek, and that is called the Septuagint. And a lot of what, a lot of the New Testament, uh, Translations were based on that uh, rather than than Hebrew directly, um, but uh, the word translates the Hebrew word Messiah, which is sounds like Messiah. Uh, the later Hebrew word was taken into the Greek in the form Messias, and from this the English Messiah is der- is derived. But all the way through, the meaning is the anointed one, or or the meaning is anointed, the meaning of Christ is anointed. Um, So in the early, in the Old Testament, it it was first just the priests and the kings who were anointed. They were the the first and only characters or people or, you know, or offices to be anointed, and they were anointed with oil. Um, Exodus 29.7, and then when Saul and David were anointed, the Spirit of Yahweh came mightily upon them, and Yahweh's anointed came to to be a title or description of the king of Israel. So it was kings and priests who were first anointed. Um, Then as the Psalms developed, the the phrase or adjective anointed came to be applied to the whole people of Israel. And that that is consistent with with something that goes on in the Bible where where in a sense um, like in Isaiah when you had these suffering servant songs that again we know from Handel's Messiah and one of the interpretations is that the suffering servant is the people of Israel An- another is that that those are predictors of Christ. I mean, Christ is then tied to the suffering servant. But but that's consistent with the idea that the people of Israel are um, are anointed and special. I mean, that part of their calling was, was to be uh, set apart, as Peter says, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Um, so, so if if the first use of anointed was for the kings and the priests, the second use, a later use, was for the people of Israel. Um, and then in Psalm 105, it is is the only time that the phrase is plural, and it refers to the patriarchs. So another use of anointed applied to the patriarchs. And then um, probably the most famous one, or or one that became famous, is that in Isaiah, which again is the is the prophet that that is most used as pointing to Christ, or there's most parallels between Isaiah and and actually the life of Christ when when he came. Um, it is Isaiah who uses the word anointed to apply to Cyrus, the king of Persia, and Persia was not part of the 
the people of Israel, but it but it is Cyrus who issued the order for the people of Israel during exile to return to their land. And and it's interesting that that this sort of major use of the word anointed is not for a Jewish king, but for a Persian king. And and so Cyrus I mean, Isaiah actually says, you know, Cyrus, my anointed, or quotes, quotes God saying that. So that's a pretty famous use of the word anointed. Um, in terms of the tense, I mean, we, we live in Christianity a lot with, with our, our common understanding or concept that, that these prophetic writings were to predict the coming of Christ, and and that that this development of the concept of a Messiah, we sort of conflate that with a prediction of the coming of Christ, and and it's important to to keep in mind that the Jewish hope and expectation for a Messiah does not necessarily translate to a direct prediction that Jesus of Nazareth is that Messiah, because obviously when he came. He was not accepted as the Messiah. He did not meet their expectation or understanding of what Messiah would be, which is one of the reasons that that there's a difference. But um, the what's interesting is that is this line in here in that in the Old Testament, the term anointed is never used in paired with the future tense. It's really a description of an existing king at the time. It's not so-and-so will be anointed. And so this concept of it being predictive is, is not as developed in Judaism as, as we have made it to be that way in, in Christianity. What happens, though, is that, is that as the New Testament developed and as Christianity developed, Early Christians who were Jewish and who had the Old Testament looked back at the passages in Isaiah and, and in other prophets and looked back at the Psalms, having the knowledge of who Jesus was and the belief that Jesus was the Messiah, and they began to say, oh, that's what they were talking about. So that the, the predictive element of the of the Old Testament was more a function of the existing faith in Christ than it was a faith at the time trying to predict Christ. And that's why it, it, in the Old Testament it never appears with the future tense. Um, the, uh, the New Testament would later interpret some passages in the Psalms which originally referred to an actual king messianically. So it's, it's as if we were to say, um, you know, King George the Fourth, who's ruling over us, is anointed by God. And 400 years later, Christians would read that and say, "Christ is anointed." This was really pointing to to our King that's coming. Um, that that was more of a Christian development than than was built into the original use of of the word anointed. Um, and such usage did not begin to happen in Jewish literature until the end of the third century, until 300 years after Christ was born. Then they began to, 
to, to use that that phrase or, or that predictive element. Um, that is so, so that's I mean those are therefore when we have the name Jesus Christ, what we've got is a common first name, Jesus, that means God saves, which is a very accurate description of his purpose and function. And the second, Christ, his last name, uh, literally means the anointed or uh, or the Christ. And that is the part that that really sets him apart as as God's chosen instrument, as God as God's son. And so when we it's interesting because uh as you go across different denominations or different traditions in America, uh, there are some churches whose default language is Jesus. And there are some churches whose default language is Christ. And we're more or less in the second category. I know when, when Carolyn and Jack Turner came here, and, and they'd, been at, they'd been in the Methodist church for 17 years, but Jack was was a Southern Baptist minister prior to retirement. Many of you all know them. And uh, Carolyn's actually had a fall last week and had, had surgery again. But uh, but Carolyn once asked in this class, she said, when I came here, I realized that you all hardly ever say Jesus. What you say is Christ. And, and if you've been in free church traditions, uh, in Baptist or Assemblies of God, yeah, you get Jesus a lot, and we're sort of more on the Christ side, and and part of that is just a little bit of of reverence or not wanting to call him by his first name, <laughs> you know. I guess I don't know. It's 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 probably more. Yeah, Christ is probably the the language of Catholicism more because it is a higher Christology in that in that regard. So, Sandy, is that? Did you say something wise or, or good? Yeah. So, if you come from the Baptist Church, you recognize the difference. A lot of us in this room have grown up Presbyterian or Episcopal or Catholic, and so we don't know. Y'all look at me like, well, yeah, I know what we always do. But Terry, you grew up Baptist, yeah. If you grew up at all, right? So, okay. Right. Is that important, or is it just? Yes, who would be anointing Jesus? That is important. Yes. I mean, because, I mean, even in the Old Testament, the whole idea is that the, the people were having a leader, a priest, or a king anointed. And I would say, you know, that's the people putting a blessing. And all I see. A level of significance. What in the New Testament do we have that says, yeah, Jesus Christ is the Son of Man, and here... To save us, all that sort of stuff. Is it the people? Who's doing the anointing? Yeah. 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 Who does the anointing is important. Right. We'll see in, well, we won't see it in these passages. I I think it's it's very clear in the New Testament that the anointing comes primarily at the baptism. This is my son, my beloved. Because uh, that appears in all three, and and it's pre, it's predicted by John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist 
whatever he did and and however the gospels treated him it is consistent that John the Bab John the Baptist's role was to point and say this is the one the one that's coming and then when the baptism happens which is very early in all the gospels the heavens open and a dove descends and in in one of the gospels the voice of God speaks directly to Jesus. You are my son, my beloved. In the other gospels, the voice of God speaks to the, to the crowd. This is my son, my beloved. Listen to him. But it's clearly, it's clearly an anointing from God. And I would just second, I, the only thing I would say, I mean, Terry, you're, you're right to some extent in that the people were doing the anointing, but even the kings, I mean, as the Old Testament developed, it was pretty much, God telling Samuel to anoint Saul. See? Yeah. But I would say it's clear in the New Testament that Jesus was anointed, anointed by God. So, yes, Gail. Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized. Right. And John was Yes. Jesus was a lot higher, right. And Jesus said, no, you're the one who's going to do this. Right. And then so the anointing, like you're saying, it seems like to me, it was the Holy Spirit that anointed him, I mean the dove that came right. that actually did the anointing, you know. And John, he was doing what Jesus asked him to do, but he knew he wasn't really anointing because he didn't have the status to Right. Yeah. I mean, the baptism is a very dramatic. The heavens opened and and Christ came down. I mean, one of the and one of the things we're going to talk that's a little bit of a of an aside on this is that, again, if you'll recall in the gospel, each gospel writer puts sort of the beginning of Jesus' ministry and awareness of who he is at a different place. Because in the Gospel of John, it's in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ, Christ's identity as Messiah, we would say, is built into the cosmology, is, is really tied to creation. The other extreme is Mark, where Christ begins as an adult. I mean, there's nothing about a birth story. In Matthew and Luke, you have the angels, the wise men, uh, the the messengers to Zechariah announcing who he's going to be. So that's sort of a middle ground, uh, and but but all of it points to him being the Messiah. I mean, nobody in the none of the four gospel writers questions whether Jesus. Christ, whether or not Jesus Christ is the Messiah. I mean, they believe he is, and that is why they are writing. It's not a, on the one hand, it could be this. On the other hand, it could be that. They are writing to proclaim that he's Messiah. What we're going to talk about in just a minute is, it's a little bit less clear when Jesus knew he was Messiah. And it's not unclear that he was reticent to make that claim about himself, which is different than not knowing it. I mean, that's two different things. But but that 
that's sort of the source. Of, so let's just look at that, you know, now for a minute, these parts, because this this is sort of preliminary in a way to what I what I want to do. Um, if we look, I'm I'm on page two now. Uh, the the, the title Messiah in the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke occurs less often than we might think, given that these books are written to show that he's the Messiah. Um, in Mark 14, which is way towards the end of the gospel, and, and part of it is just notice the way Jesus Jesus treats the title. Um, this is you know this is at the arrest at the trial down in verse 60, Mark 14:60. The high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, "Have you no answer? What is it they testify against you?" But Jesus is silent and does not answer. Again, this is the trial scene. Again, the high, the high priest asks him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus says, I am. I mean, he claims that title for himself in Mark. But then he says, And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That is a reference to Daniel 7, where the Son of Man is this apocalyptic figure who comes from heaven to earth. And that, that is the clearest parallel in the Old Testament, or almost prediction, because that passage is used by Jesus. And when you're going through the Gospels, and Jesus and others, but especially Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man. That comes from Daniel 7. And it's sort of his way of saying, I am this holy, mysterious, apocalyptic figure that's coming from the clouds um, to earth. And and that that is the title that Jesus claimed for himself. And he and, and he claims it here in in uh, Mark and he claims it and immediately connects it with Daniel seven. Um, so his reply was taken as an admission that he was Messiah, and it was as a pretended Messiah that he was sentenced to death. Uh, but the but the enemies, his opponents, could offer no other evidence that he that he was the Messiah other than that he said while on trial, "I am," and he's clearer about it there than he will be in some of the other trial scenes. Because um, if you look then at Matthew 26, um, the, kind of the same scene, um, Matthew 26, uh, down at the bottom of that, the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? Again, Jesus was silent. Then the high priest says to him, I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says to them, you have said so. See, in Mark he says, I am. In Matthew he says, in the same scene he says, you have said so. And then he says, but I tell you, from now on you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the cloud of heavens. And again, this is what leads of his conviction. So even though even though Matthew is sort of writing from Mark and has Mark, Mark has him say, I am. And Matthew has him say, you have said so. In, in an otherwise very parallel scene. So again, it's just the reticence that Jesus has, the continued reticence to claim that he's the Messiah. 
Then in Luke uh, at at twenty two sixty six, and again I think all this is is on your sheet. Um, at at sixty seven, they say, "If you are the Messiah, tell us." He replies, "If I tell you, you won't believe me. If I question you, you will not answer." But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of power of God. All of them then say, are you then the Son of God? And he says to them, you say that I am. Then they say, what further testimony do we need? So in these three Gospels, while he's on trial, it's only in Mark that he says, yes, I am. But in all three Gospels, he refers to the coming of the Son of Man that they will see. And it's just, I mean, part of that is Jesus' continuing refusal to be boxed in by human questions and human categories. Um, I mean, he is, he is a witness who is always going to heavenize or apocalypticize the yes and no questions they want. It's almost like watching a congressional hearing where somebody will say, answer yes or no, and they never get the yes or no answer. And it's sort of a legitimate you know, because if he says, yes, I'm the Messiah, then he is implying an agreement with what they believe the Messiah is. And their belief of the Messiah is pretty much as a, as a political liberator who is going to help them throw off the shackles of Rome. So that if he says yes, then it's sort of, okay, let's call in the troops and storm the Bastille, which is not what he was about. So that's why he, even when he says yes or you've said so, he then talks about this apocalyptic son of man coming. You know, and if somebody did that before Congress, they, they wouldn't be confirmed or they wouldn't have been confirmed. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, he, he constantly makes the meaning of Messiah. Uh, I don't want to say more spiritual because, I mean, it is more spiritual, but it's really more apocalyptic. It's more this big, earth-shattering, cosmos-shattering thing that is happening that, that you don't really understand but that, or that does not meet your expectations and definitions of what Messiah is. So he's not trying to be slippery, but he's, not, he's refusing to, be, to limit himself to their categories. Correct. That's very well said. I mean, their their need for salvation is rightly get us out from under the Roman boot. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But but his definition of salvation is greater than I don't want to say simply being freed from Rome. Cause simply being freed from Rome is a good thing, you know. But it but it's. It is more cosmological, apocalyptic. It's harder to define, to define, and I would still say that we can't fully define it. I mean, you, you know, it, it is beyond human understanding, or or, or it's beyond human description. Uh, now let's switch to the to John's gospel, um, which is always interesting um, for for entirely different ways. Uh, in John's Gospel, Jesus is acknowledged to be the disciple from the beginning of his public ministry. In John 1, uh, 
41 and 49. This is uh, this is the call of Simon and Andrew and James and John. Um, he first found his brother Simon. This is Andrew first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, and John puts in parentheses, which is the anointed. He wants his reader to know that. And he brought Cedar, he brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of God, you are to be called Cephas, da 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 da. And then in the next scene, uh, Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel. Uh, Nathaniel's under the, the uh, Nathaniel asked Jesus when Jesus comes up. How did you know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. And Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Uh, Very truly, I say you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So even Nathanael, who's just studying, uh, uh, recognizes in the first chapter that that Jesus is the Messiah. but even in John, only once does Jesus explicitly claim to be the Messiah. Uh, this is the woman at the well, I believe, in John 4. The woman says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. Again, John is editorializing, putting in parenthesis to explain it. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to her. And then Jesus says that magic word that Moses used, I am he the one who is speaking to you. I am the Messiah. And that is linked to the Exodus I am because remember in John's gospel, Jesus has all the I am saying, I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the vine. I am the so-and-so and so-and-so. There's 10 or 11 I ams that Jesus uses to describe himself and that only happens in John. So when he says, I am he, that is... Um, that's significant. Uh, and John, and in, in John, Jesus never attempts to conceal the fact that he was the Messiah. Uh, in 10:25 down there, how long will you, will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus says, "I've told you, and you don't not, and you do not believe. But the works that I do in my Father's name testify to me." And then in verse 30. The Father and I are one. So, um, again, in all of the Gospels, um, in in the Gospel of John, Jesus is the most in charge of his own fate. Um, at, at the, in the final words of Jesus, it is He who says, "It is finished," and it and it and He gives up His spirit. Uh, there's not the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, he forgives. He links his mother with the beloved disciple and the beloved disciple with the mother. Uh, at one point, in uh, when he's talking about the good shepherd in John, Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. I lay it down of my own accord. He is the most uh, self-determined and clear about what he's doing in John's gospel. There is not a sense in John's gospel, or there's less of a sense in John's gospel, that he has been victimized or is not in control. He really is fully self-aware and fully going to the cross himself. 
in John than in the others. And and that might, in a way, blow our mind. We would think, oh, wouldn't they all write the same thing? But again, they're writing 30 to 60 years after the fact. And they're, um, they're writing based on materials they have, and they're writing based on on a theology that, that has developed for them and that they are communicating back to their community. And, it, and, and they're not mutually exclusive. They're only mutually exclusive to us who are used to uh, multiple choice questions on tests where only one right answer counts. Uh, I mean, Jesus can be both, I will say in, in a minute, both victim on the one hand but in charge on the other. And, and that's part of this sort of transcendent nature that he is. So questions about that so far, and then we'll take a take a break. Any reaction? Yes, Kurt. I'm just thinking about the mechanics here. <laughs> Right. Right. To English, 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 English. To King James English. To good news for modern man. There, there are a few things that get lost in the translation. There are. There are. And and something like, you know, since, I mean, American Christianity lived off the King James Version until the 1950s, and then we lived off the Revised Standard Version. And then in about the 1970s, I I think probably the Good News for Modern Man was the first translation, and that was out of a a Billy Graham, I think, organization. And since then, Bibles, Bibles, Bibles are everywhere and in every kind of translation. And there's like Carpenter's Bibles and football players' Bibles and Bibles for Bibles and Bibles. You know, you go into an airport and there's nothing but Bibles. And they're, it's very important. I mean, on the one hand, they're good because it's sort of, that's sort of the democratization that Luther introduced to putting the Bible in the hands of the people. But, uh, there are translations, and then there are translations, and, and it's always important to at least acknowledge whether you're reading a direct translation from the original language or you're reading a paraphrase, because a paraphrase is just what some guy or girl is writing, uh, sitting in their bedroom trying to be jargony, trying to be in, in kind with the jargon. So... Uh, How do you know some, which is which? Obvious, yeah. Well, to, to know the difference between a paraphrase and a translation, look at the cover or look at what, you know, the cover page. Because it should be honest and say okay. translation. Yeah. So, and, and they're not evil, sort of. <laughs> they're, you know. Yeah. But, but it's also, there's nothing pure about translation. I mean, anybody, and I'm, I'm not a language person, but anybody that has studied or knows something about a foreign language, especially if it's not a Romance language, if it's a dead language, Latin or Greek or, or Hebrew, uh, knows that, that translation is, there's a certain amount of subjectivism and guesswork in it, and particularly when you're dealing with manuscripts where in Hebrew that they have been destroyed or are faulty, you know, or 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 vary, and and the to get a little bit technical, the thing in Hebrew, which I do remember, I mean I do know this is that um, 
Hebrew itself is written only in consonants. Consonants. And so the vowel sounds like, say, say Jehovah or Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H. The A and the E are guesses based on how we think they were pronounced. And there's points, there's these little things that look like apostrophes or dots that have a huge impact on, on what word it is. But all of that is more or less reconstructed guesswork. And so one of the things, you know, one of the inside uh, inside baseball things that happens when, you know, we're up here in the office and somebody opens and realizes, oh, I've got this Old Testament reading and it's got all these names in it, how do I pronounce them? We just say, oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Nobody will know the difference. That's one way we say it. But the truth is, even those pronouncement, those pronunciations are, are guesses in the ancient language. It's, that's still a cheap way out. You should look it up and try to do your best. And the main thing is we don't try to contradict each other because then people go. So, so there's no perfect way, Carrie, is to answer your question. I'm just passing this on in case anyone finds Yeah. And so he will tell you what he chooses, but he doesn't say that. You have to choose them. Yeah. And the one we've got, I mean, the New Revised Standard was, this was done in the early 90s. Um, and, and it's sort of become the Bible you're apt to find in the pews of, of mainline churches. And, you know, it, it it's. It's good. It's not great. I, I don't think. And, I, and again, I don't. I don't work in the original languages, so I'm not much to say about this. But I also just want to say that there is. Um, I think in in our use of religious language, this has nothing to do with Jesus as Messiah. This is just sort of what we feel and experience in worship. I think that there is inevitably a tension between what I would say is beauty and holiness versus accuracy sometimes. Um, The King James Version of the Bible has had an enormous influence on the English language, just as has Shakespeare. And it was actually, it's from the 1500s. Yeah, 1500s, right, Phil? It's the 1600s, yeah, 1600s, yeah. And when it was written about 100 years after the Reformation, it was truly written for the common people. And now we who are educated can't understand it. It's too hard for us. I can't read that. I mean, that's the irony of it. But it, it was really the working persons bringing, bringing the language into, into the common uh, most of us, if we were raised in the church or are raised in a religious tradition, and I know this is true true for me, we have ways that we learned Scripture as a child, and, and they are grooved in our brain, and we don't like them changed. For example, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Nobody says leadeth anymore. 
you know, I'm going to leadeth you to the grocery store. I'm going to leadeth you to the woodshed. I mean, we just don't do that. But I don't like hearing the psalm in any way other than that. Okay? So, you know, I was, what? I was, I was 35, I guess, 30, 37 or 38 when this came out. So I've never fully adjusted to this. And when I do funerals or weddings, I use the old King James. But I'm old-fashioned. I mean, there are other people. And I mean, if you've been grown, if you've grown up in a mega church, if you've grown up in a in in Protestantism, it's it's been shaped the last 40 years. Uh, you don't necessarily know the Lord's Prayer. You don't necessarily know the 23rd Psalm. And you certainly don't know it. In the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. So everybody gets grooved with something. And that really doesn't have anything to do with translation, but it has something to do with our religious consciousness. Okay, Kurt, yeah. One thing that's disturbing to me is uh, I think the closer you are to the real translation, because I believe the Bible's words have specific meaning for each of us and Yes. Yeah. substitute cookies tonight, but I'm sure that Judy did her very best. So so let's do about 10 minutes, and then we're going to talk about Jesus as a whole. So... And... Uh, If everybody will take a seat, and I'm, we're gonna we're gonna sort of flip the the way we do this now, and I want you to turn to the last page of your handout, which is a landscape little chart, and this is one of the this is one of the few times where I acknowledge that my aversion to things like PowerPoint is is probably a hindrance because this this is it's probably better when I put it up here, but but so be it. Uh, once every, you know, 55 lessons, it's not worth learning a tech, new technology for me. So, um, but th- this is something that, that I, this actually came from my introductory, not Bible class, but systematic theology class at Union from Dr. Christopher Morris. And I learned about 10 years ago, or even less than that. I mean, he's now in his 80s and, and retired, and he had been down here about 10 years, 8 or 10 years ago. But... He told me this this comes from a theologian named a New Testament scholar named Reginald Fuller. So he didn't devise this, but but he gave it to us in in an introductory class and I have just used it. I have found it a useful way to talk about who Jesus Christ is to to churches ever since and I've refined it some. But but to date myself <laughs> I'll, I, I always I used to start by asking, and I'm going to ask you all this because we're of this generation. When I say the word Watergate, what was Watergate? It was a <laughs> yes. It was on one level 
Watergate was an office building and hotel. It still is in D.C. I heard somebody say scandal. Okay. What else? It was a break-in. So we've got office building, break-in, scandal, the end of a presidency. I mean, it was a constitutional crisis that ended with the, with the resignation. I mean, that's enough. You know, that's enough. When I say the word Jesus Christ, what is it? Reverence, crucify, okay. Savior, teacher, friend, God. Nobody's wrong yet. Salvation, okay. <laughs> what what this chart does, and 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 what I what I want us to get us in the mind frame of, is that when we say Jesus Christ. And I, I would answer by saying on one level, we are talking about a first century human being who lived and died. On one level, we're talking about a man. Okay. On another level, we are talking about everything that's on this chart. And so what we're going to do, and this will also date me, but I was just young enough to be of the generation that aspired to change your spark plugs in your car yourself. And I actually halfway learned to do that in high school and college. Now it's hopeless. I mean, everything's computerized. I don't know that anybody that changes their own spark plugs. But my fear and experience was you could always break your car down. The challenge was putting it back together <laughs> to where it would actually drive. You know, these... these driveway garage mechanics. It's easy to break a car down. It's just, you know, how are you going to put it back together? What we're going to do in this lesson, and I, I want to say it over and over and over, is we are going to break down who Jesus Christ is. But the purpose is we're going to break down, break him down to look at the parts with the idea that we're going to put him back together and have a deeper and richer understanding. Because it, because Nothing does nothing does any good when it's broken down unless it's put back together. Okay, so so I want us to get to the putting back together. But if you, I, I think the the other thing. Well, I'll I'll say this as we go along. The the phrase Jesus Christ. If we take from the beginning to the end, refers to all of these things across the top line. Okay, if if we're based in the in the New Testament, Jesus Christ refers to his pre, what we call his pre-existence, and that is only the opening of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Most of us, nobody, when I said, who is Jesus Christ, said, oh, the one that was in the beginning. I mean, that's not the first thing that comes into our mind. But that is a part of the biblical witness of who Jesus Christ is. is the one who was with God in the beginning. 
And that's called technically the pre-existence. He was who he was before he existed. Okay. The second thing on the spectrum or stage of life is his birth. Most of us who have any familiarity with Christianity relate to the birth of Jesus. Remember, it only occupies four chapters of the New Testament. Two chapters of Luke and two chapters of Matthew. But the stories of the birth of Christ and the impact of Christmas on us spiritually and on the world culturally are huge, are way oversized to those four chapters. So most of us know Joseph and Mary and the angels and the shepherds and the manger and the innkeeper and no room at the end. What? The three wise men, you know. The, the, the birth of Christ is very significant to most of us in at least an intellectual level, level or a sentimental level, an emotional level. Okay? Then if you move further to the right on this chart, we have the life of Jesus. Um, and obviously, this is the longest column. We have the one story of his childhood where he is lost in the temple. And there are all these lost Gospels and Gnostic Gospels that have a lot of childhood stories. There's one of them that was included in the Gospels when he was lost in the temple by his parents and found teaching the temple leaders. That's the only childhood story we have of Jesus. His baptism, we've talked about, is in all four Gospels. This is my son, my beloved, listen to him. A very, very important part of his life. The transfiguration, we don't talk about a lot. We, we acknowledge that Sunday in Presbyterianism, but if you're in Catholicism or if you're in the Orthodox Church, it's a huge Sunday. But that is where he went up to the mountain with James and John and Peter and was literally transfigured before the disciples in what, what really was an earthly appearance of what he would look like raised from the dead. It was sort of a preparing them for what was going to happen. But that's part of his life. We just don't, it doesn't have a lot of traction in mainline Protestantism. His teaching is very important and familiar to most of us. The Sermon on the Mount, the parables. Um, there are many people in the world and certainly in sort of skeptical, Western, enlightened, you know, Western culture who believe in the teachings of Jesus but don't but have trouble with everything else. You know, the world would be so great, we say, if everybody just followed the teachings of Jesus. I may not believe in the resurrection. I may not believe in the birth. I may not believe in the divinity. I may not believe in he's God's son. But if we would just follow the Sermon on the Mount, the world would be a better place. So the teachings are well known to us. Okay, The parables are fairly well known, especially prodigal son, good Samaritan. Um, and then his deeds. Now, the deeds can cause people of, of skepticism problems because so many of them are miraculous, walking on water, healing people, uh, eating with tax collectors and sinners, uh, 
even the prophetic actions of cleansing the temple and cursing the fig tree. Those can be appealing to people on one level. They can be, um, well, I just don't really know that I believe in miracles. I'll follow the teachings, but I just don't know that I'll believe in miracles. But, but all of these in the life of Jesus are important in that they're fairly well known to people who are faithful or who are considering faith or wrestling with faith. Uh, another major stage is the passion, which which is a Catholic phrase, but it means the it refers to the last week of Jesus' life, his suffering, um, death. Um, so it starts with the Last Supper, and if we've got any acknowledgement of Western art, we know the Last Supper with twelve people on one side of the table. Uh, the farewell discourses we saw in John, we may know a little bit of them. Uh, let not your heart be troubled. Uh, you know, those those chapter 14 through 17, there's four chapters of them. Uh, not that famous, but, but, but more famous than we realize, if for no other reason than, than some of those passages are included in funeral liturgies. The Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me, but not as my will but thine be done, where Jesus in one of the Gospels sweats drops of blood, hoping that he does not have to go to his death. Uh, but, but concludes by saying, let, let this, not, not my will, but thine be done. And this is where the disciples go to sleep. Uh, the betrayal by Judas is very well known in culture and in history. The whole, just the idea of, of someone being a Judas comes down to us, even if we have very little to do with Christianity. His arrest, his trials, there are two in Luke and one otherwise, his crucifixion, um, and the fact that he was abandoned by all of his disciples. And I didn't put betrayal, yeah, I did put betrayal up there earlier. So those events of the last week of his life leading to his death are you know, fairly well known and, and something that we that helps form our faith. His death on the cross is surprisingly um, only very few verses describe it, and given our penchant for liking a lot of details about violence, they're very restrained in their description. Clearly there is an indication of the degree to which he suffered, but it is nothing like what it would be in the hands of a contemporary writer who tried to sell magazines off of it. I mean, I mean, the Passion of the Christ is a movie, you know, escalated the description of his suffering. I mean, it just was centered around everything it, you know, could to make that suffering real or even beyond real. The gospel writers are pretty restrained when you think about it, but it's real. And the seven last words, if you're raised in the Catholic tradition, may be another way that you're familiar with the death. The resurrection, um, again, obviously important, fairly well known within Christianity. There are, I'm told there's, there's, I mean, I have encountered this before, uh, very meaningful conversations with people who are either members of the church or who have decided not to join the church but who are active in the church who just say, 
I can't believe in the resurrection. And my understanding is there's recently learned of someone who comes here virtually every Sunday and has never joined, and I've recently been told that the reason is she just can't believe in the resurrection. So out of a sense of integrity, has not joined the church. But the bottom line is it's central to Christianity, and most of us know about it. Uh, the way we know about it, the narratives of the resurrection in the New Testament are either of an empty tomb or of appearances. And, and those, those are conflated. Uh, and, and then Paul spends oodles of time and energy on the significance of the resurrection. But in terms of narrating what happened, it's the empty tomb or, or appearances. The gift of the Holy Spirit um, we don't. We sometimes don't think of that necessarily as part of the uh, part of the life of Christ, but it is. A, is it's an important part of this schema. That is, you know, the Spirit is the way that Christ is with us after His resurrection and ascension. And and what you will see in Luke. I mean, we haven't quite gotten. I mean, in Acts is that. Um, the ascension occur the gift of the spirit in acts occurs on pentecost which is 50 days after the resurrection and so there is this 50 day period in which jesus is still on earth after the resurrection making these appearances and then the gift of the spirit comes and he is ascended into heaven and the ascension is really the the time in which he is now gone as as no longer on earth as as Christ. Um, But it is the inbreathing of the Spirit into believers individually and and corporately as the church and and told in the Pentecost in Acts. The ascension, I don't even have anything in there. The column, it is the most underappreciated and reported aspect of Protestantism. I mean, we just sort of think, like I've said before, you know, he died sort of mid-March. He was raised at the end of March. Spring comes and we all hit the golf course or the gardens. You know, we just don't pay attention to the ascension, but the ascension is 50 days afterwards. And really, that's, that's the point at which he truly leaves us on our own when he has ascended into heaven. And then the other thing that we sort of, you know, go like this about is the promised return. Uh, and I, and, I, and I particularly like the phrase promised return. That's sometimes called the parousia, uh, in, which is the Greek word for existence to come or something. But um, it's very, very important to, um, to what he was talking about and what the gospel writers were talking about. And that is um, the concept that though he is the redeemer and though he has come to save and redeem the world, our experience of his redemption is not yet complete until his promised return, until he comes again. And, and that's part of our, part of some of the communion liturgies. Uh, they end with until he comes again. Uh, it's not, it's not there all the, I think it is in the one we said today. Uh, but, Again, that gets all wrapped up in the popular narratives about the second coming and and the extent to which that return will be an act of judgment or an act of beauty and culminating and inclusiveness in history. And we will solve that when we spend one week on Revelation, your last week in this course. But it's 
but it's huge. Uh, it, it's a very important part. And and what I like to say, um, I, I'm. I mean, I don't preach on that a lot, but I teach on it a lot, and I and I don't fear it. Um, I, I do think that whole part of, of the Christian story has been ignored by a lot of mainline churches, which is one reason that the TV preachers have the only narrative out there that's known in popular culture, and that's generally of judgment and fear. I don't think it has to be that way. Uh, but but the reality is that that we live toward that promise turn in promise return and hope for it but but it is also an explanation for the for the problem of evil and for why things well he's come he's redeemed us why aren't things perfect again well he has not come again yet and and that's the promise that all things will be made new yes gail Yeah. Uh, because he had to go away. So when you do your reading next week, let's let's see if I've got that out of order. It's right. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Let's just look at Luke and see which happens first. I don't remember right now, but you might be right in my No, that's fine. Yeah. So but you're right. So I may have it backwards. So um especially since I didn't put anything in the column. So um so anyway, what I what I want to say about this is I find I find a couple of things. Um one is that most Christians, most of us, are are initially attracted or start somewhere on this grid, you know, with one of these columns. And and let me just, you know, let me sort of give some examples of, of what that can be. Um, for many children, their first experience of of Jesus Christ is Christmas. I mean, it's just the, the appeal of Christmas. And there are many adults <laughs> who, for whom that is still the most meaningful aspect of, of Jesus Christ. I mean, you would not have, you know, Miracle on 34th Street if there weren't a cultural promise that people can be civil to one another and can put somebody else's interests first. If you didn't have some something deep in the human heart that believed in that and trusted that, and the Christmas story meets that need, whether you believe it or not. Okay? It just is there. And so, so my only point is that of all these people out in the world, especially in our culture, some of us begin our Christian faith with the Christmas story. Okay? 
Um, there are people who, there are many people who begin their attraction to Christ as essentially a social reformer. Okay? As a, as a person of peace, as a person of equality, as a person of social justice, as a person of feeding the hungry, as a person of ending the war, of ending war, as just that great teacher and stormer of the temple that he was. And, and especially in, you know, 19th century America, I mean, Jesus is an abolitionist, Jesus is John Brown, you know, Jesus is, is somebody that's going to, to bring justice. Uh, in, in a prophetic and, and in a humanistic sense. Again, there is, for all of these things, there is, there is nothing wrong with that kind of attraction to Jesus or that kind of starting point. If you are a, um, <laughs> in, in, in America, in our culture, because we love victory, we love resurrection. And it is still, I mean, in my lifetime, I have seen, when I started ministry, Christmas and Easter were about equal in attendance and draw, but it is now Easter by far. I mean, attendance and interest is higher at Easter than it is at Christmas. And part of that is that Christmas has just more and more become culturally swallowed. And as people are more affluent, they're more gone at Christmas, or they have relatives in, and as families become mixed, you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna bring your Jewish brother-in-law and try to get him to go to Christmas Eve services. Our choir struggles to have 100% attendance at Christmas because people are gone, you know. Yeah, ushers, everything is hard at Christmas Eve service. You know, well, who's gonna be here? You know. But Easter is one week. It's really just one day, and everybody comes. So, again, we love the underdog who has overcome, who has won, and Easter has its appeal, even though the downside of it, as is Christmas, is I'm so rational I can't believe that that Jesus is divine. I can't believe that God would be born a human being. That's the problem with Christmas. The problem with Easter is I'm so rational, I cannot believe that someone would be raised from the dead. But I'm going to go to church on Easter. <laughs> you see what I mean? That, I'm just saying in the appeal. Very few of us, very few of us in our circles are initially attracted to Christ because of the promised return. It just doesn't loom large in our thinking or our consciousness. Uh, more and more, as as denominations merge, or, or as they as everything becomes more fluid, I would say there is a greater attraction to the to the part on this chart that we would generally say is the gift of the spirit. I mean, we now have movements called spiritual, but not religious categories called spiritual, but not religious. We have much more awareness in our churches of spiritual practices, of the gift of the Spirit, you know, trying to cultivate a spiritual life. I mean, it's part of what Christine was doing today. I mean, that's 
in, in old traditional Presbyterianism, the Spirit was just sort of like it is in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, and then we move on to other things. So, so the, so the gift of the Spirit or spiritual experiences are loom larger um, than they used to. So my point is this, um, and I've sort of made this up, but I made it up a long time ago, and I, and I think it has legs. Uh, it is natural that you would you would begin your interest in the Christian faith in Jesus Christ in one of these columns, or maybe in two of them. What the challenge is, is that most of us get stuck in that same column or don't move beyond that same column, particularly if you're not involved in a community of faith. If you're sort of a generalized Christian and you've had these wonderful experiences of going to church with your parents at Easter or going to church with your parents at Christmas, you sort of can can never graduate beyond that. The mature and complete and challenging faith is to move across all of those columns, to, to, to be aware of where you start and then just try to move to the left to learn more about that aspect of who Jesus is that's not very familiar to you, and to the right, you know, to where you're covering them all, to where, to where you're learning about all of them and, and hopefully each of them in their own way is becoming, is becoming part of who you are. And believe me, that is a lifelong effort. There's no time frame. There's no right or wrong. There's no direction you have to move in. You don't have to start at one superior place. But, but, but when we think of Jesus Christ, when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, what, what I would say, what I say is that what we are saying is all of this. This is putting the, this is putting the car engine back together now. And, and that it's important to just try to grow and inculcate and appropriate as many of these as possible so that, yes, Jesus is the social reformer. Yes, he's the great teacher. Yes, he's the baby in the manger. Yes, he's the one who was preexistent. Yes, he's the one who will return. Yes, he's the one who was raised from the dead. Yes, he's the one who is with us spiritually. So that it's so that when we say Jesus Christ, it's or when we say Watergate, it's not just an office building, it's it's all of those things, and that and that they all have meaning and claim upon our lives, and that we spend all of our lives enriching each column and learning more about them, uh, and just you know making them a part of our faith, um, and that relates a little bit. I had some. Uh, I had some concern last week in the way I presented the John 14 material about, and I am an aspiring universalist and want to be a universalist, but I still think the discussion, I think our reaction to that verse is still in a way narrowly transactional. The question is, um, in the transaction between myself and God, do I have to know about Jesus Christ and speak his name? in order to be saved. There's nothing inappropriate with that question. But that question is 
is still just a part of this chart because the chart is the whole and the whole is truly this son of man, this apocalyptic figure that comes from, from heaven and descends to earth and defines everything and calls everything. And uh, if you live 150 years and spend every day studying it, you will only you know, scratch the surface. Of, of the richness that's there, but that's okay. That's okay. So I always, I'm, I always like to end with just sharing a few things that are that I think are just rich. I think I'm just going to share one of these things to give you all time to talk. And and some of you will have heard this before. I included them all here, but I just want to read uh, read. Schweitzer's end to the quest to the historical Jesus, which many of you will have heard. It's fairly famous. came out of the 19th century when everybody was trying to reconstruct the historical Jesus to say, write a biography, exactly what he did and when he did it and where. And this is how Schweitzer ended his, which, which sort of blew everybody else out of the water, basically saying you can't do it. But, but this is how he ends it. Um, It's in the middle of page five. Jesus comes to us as one unknown without a name. As of old by the lakeside, he came to those who knew him not. He speaks to us the same words, follow thou me. And he sets us to the tasks which he has to fulfill in our time or for our time. He commands And to those who obey him, whether they be wise, like all of us in this room and in this city think we are, or simple like all of those we look down on or avoid or have come from and are glad we aren't anymore, whether they be wise or simple, he will reveal himself in the toils, the conflicts, the sufferings which they shall pass through in his fellowship. And as an ineffable mystery, they shall learn in their own experience who he is. It is a beautiful way of saying that you earn, you only learn of who Christ is um, by giving yourself over to him not by studying it from a distance. You only learn by doing. You only learn by participating. You only learn by seeking to follow. And uh, and that's the way this analytic this analytical chart becomes a part of your heart and that's and your life and that's that's the most important thing. That's the only way you can do it. So questions, reactions before I send you to your tables. All right. So, again, dating myself, this is your question for today. This is the, remember the actor studio on PBS? I think it's still on. I think somebody's still doing it. I haven't seen it in years. So you guys look at, yeah, does James Lipton still do it? Man, he's old enough to run for president, you know. (laughs) Um, All right, so... 
So the actor studio question, if there is a heaven, what do you want to ask Jesus when you arrive there? What is the most meaningful thing to you about Jesus Christ? Answer that at your table. you got 15 minutes. Go around the corner. If you only want to answer one of them, do. If you want to answer both of them, do. But get everybody at your table a chance to talk. And if you want to take a pass, take a pass. What are you going to ask him? What's the most meaningful? So take about 30 more seconds and then we'll have a closing. Okay, um, one quick thing, do, do remember to give Marianne uh, dollars for tonight. I've got to say that we've got to break the news to Dana and Judith. They always have leftovers, but there are no leftovers by Judy's. I don't know what happened. So uh, I want us to close with, uh, I'd just like us to... To re- I, I want to read this to you. I'm tempted to ask some of our choir people to sing it. As I've told you, I I have these groove things in my brain, and and I think the I think the words to the hymn Jesus calls us, which is an old 19th century hymn, are pretty good along the ways to what we're being to what we've said. But I just want to read them to you so that you hear them in a new way than when we sing them. So if I could have your attention, this will be our closing. Jesus calls us over the tumult of our life's wild, restless sea. Day by day, his sweet voice soundeth, saying, Christian, follow me. As of old, St. Andrew heard it by the Galilean lake, turned from home and toil and kindred, leaving all for Jesus' sake. Jesus calls us from the worship of the vain world's golden store. We don't teach kids to talk like that anymore in first grade. The vain world's golden store. From each idol that would keep us saying, Christian, love me more. In our joys and in our sorrows, days of toil and hours of ease. Still he calls in cares and pleasures. Christian love me more than these. Jesus calls us by thy mercies. Savior, may we hear thy call. Give our hearts to thine obedience. Serve and love thee best of all. Amen. See you next week.